Today we pick up the highlights of silver, where they gleam within the fantasy pattern of Christmas and glitter in stars overhead to be mirrored by a star in a cave. But right about now, you're probably more concerned with the kind of silver that jingles in your pocket and anxious to make it encompass the merriest Christmas possible for those you love. And on that score, this friend of ours has something interesting to say. gathering to itself all the life of them, they knew the day foretold by the ancient prophets had come, and hurriedly they arranged a rendezvous at an oasis in the heart of the desert. There were four of them, yes, four, Gaspar, Melchior, Balthazar, and one other whose name has been forgotten. Each made hurried preparations for the long journey, Melchior, Gaspar, and Balthazar, were to bring gifts of gold, incense, and precious myrrh. The other, the forgotten one, was to bring gifts of silver. The time of the rendezvous came and passed while Melchior and Gaspar and Balthazar waited. And worried, they stretched their patience to the utmost. And Gaspar commented, I know just what's keeping him. Some kid with a skinned knee and tears on his face. I say, leave him behind. And leave him behind they did, but Gaspar was wrong. The forgotten wise man did not come because he could not. It is true, he indiscreetly showed his silver treasure near a marketplace when giving alms to a poor man. And it is true that he was delayed by a lost child. And because he showed his treasure, and because he was delayed, a gang of scheming bandits had time to plan an attack, time to overtake him, murder his entire caravan, and make off with the silver. The bandits at first were delighted with their rich haul, and then they began to have doubts. One misfortune after another befell them. Two members were apprehended during a minor street fight and were promptly drawn and quartered. Another went mad as though from desert heat on a day that was remarkably cool. Three others had a mysterious illness, that made it impossible for them to drink, and they died horribly of thirst within sight of water. The bandits began to think the silver was a curse. They couldn't trade it off fast enough. They were so recklessly eager to be rid of it, they gave it for any trifling item. 
The merchants they traded with were suspicious but greedy. They took the silver and they took the curse. But always the new owner of the silver found tragedy followed it. And the silver passed quickly from hand to hand till it reached the government tills and acquired an air of respectability by being minted into coins. Minted into coins and separated, the silver seemed to lose some of its evil power. Or perhaps it was only waiting. It passed through hand after hand, buying bread or a bright dowry or a vicious dagger. But each time one of the coins changed hands, it journeyed a little closer to its goal. Till at last, worn by 33 years of handling, the coins came to the land once blessed by a star. And the coins of silver came together again in the hands of a power-greedy, envious man. And he too wished to buy something with them. He wished to buy a man. And he counted out the price with the 30 coins. And then he peered at his bargain a bit threateningly. It is arranged then, he said. A kiss is the sign. Don't fail us. We count on you, Judas. And the silver of the wise man came at last to the prince born under the star. It bought his one-way passage to the cross. Perhaps it serves him well, for while the star of his birth shines down on yuletide merriment, it is his cross that is engraved on the hearts of men who hunger still for his promised peace and goodwill to all men.
And now, right in tune with our own thoughts on Christmas planning, is this suggestion from a friend of ours. I wonder on that Christmas night how many passers-by beheld that strange and lustrous light in Bethlehem's patch of sky. We know how the shepherds chanced to be unto the stable set, but did that star some rich man see and wonder what it meant? They've told us of the crowded inn and of the laughter gay. But was there none who entered in on that first Christmas day to say he'd seen a wondrous sight and bear the news to them that God had hung a beacon light high over Bethlehem? Of all the throng that hurried by, did no one lift his eyes to read the glory of the sky we're all so worldly wise that God should bid the angels sing upon that midnight clear an anthem to the newborn king and only shepherds hear. And I wonder, is it still the same? Are we beyond his reach? Have we, pursuing wealth and fame, grown deaf to gentler speech? Should such a strange thing come to be, and angel choirs appear, with only watchful shepherds see, and thoughtful shepherds hear? For our Yuletide oddity, let us return to the land where Richard Hill loved, married, made his notes of music, and doubtless sang and danced the holly and the ivy. Let's turn to a Merry Christmas in Merry England. Many of our most familiar Christmas traditions come from Merry England. The caroling in the streets, the very songs we sing, the Christmas pageants that descend from England's medieval mystery plays, the feasts of roast turkey, which might be considered a close cousin to the exotic roast peacock that graced the table of Queen Elizabeth I. But let us explore the unfamiliar 
and add some less well-known lore to our story of Christmas fantasy treasures today, quaint indeed are some of the old English superstitions attached to the Yuletide. In Lancashire and Gloucestershire, for example, even today, many people hesitate to give away matches or fire for fear it will bring bad luck. While in Shropshire, folks are just as cautious about ashes, never throwing them out for fear they might blow in the face of the Christ child, who is believed to reappear on earth each Christmas Eve. And many folk in England listen anxiously to hear the cock crow on Christmas Eve. Each crow indicates an addition to the price of corn next summer, and you rejoice or moan according to whether you'll be buying or selling. If you'll be selling, each extra crow of the cock is music to your ears. Well, there are bright notes, crowing or otherwise, footnotes to append your Christmas list from this friend of ours. glitter of coins, or a wish on a star, or it can be a reward wearily earned, as it was by the old woman in the legend of the Hearts Mountains. When old Althea's husband fell ill in late summer, she put a cheerful face on things so he wouldn't be able to fell timber and split it into firewood as in years past. Well, there were other ways to earn a living, and she'd think of one. She did. Instead of supplying the villagers and the ski resorts with logs for the blazing fireplaces, as her husband had in winters past, old Althea sold them pine cones. Pine cones made good tinder for starting a fire, and they crackled and snapped cheerfully when thrown on a log that was dying down to embers. Most important, they were light enough so an old woman could sack them and drag them down the hills. And so each day, old Althea climbed farther up into the hills to fill her big sack with cones. She never said a word about how her legs ached from the climb or how numb her hands got from the cold, but her husband saw the weariness in her face. Althea, he urged, please give it, give it up. We could apply to some charity. Never, she said firmly. You've taken care of me for almost 50 years, Hans. After all of that, 
It would be a pity if I couldn't take care of you for just one winter. She tied her shawl briskly, waved a cheerful goodbye, and started out for another long climb. Out of sight of the cabin window, she slowed, saving her strength. And her shoulders sagged, thinking of how far she must go today. All the cones were gone now from the nearby slopes. That meant she'd have to go over the mountain to the other side. And she must fill the sack full as she could, too. For with Christmas coming on, the pine cones sold as fast as she could bring them in. It would be extra money if she could just manage two sacks, she thought. But she knew she never could do that. Near the top of the mountain, the wind was harsh, and the cold seemed to cut clear through her. So she huddled for a moment under a big spreading fir, and to her surprise, found the ground almost covered with the biggest cones she had ever seen. How had she ever missed this tree, she wondered. And eagerly she began filling the sack, and then the branches above her swayed and shook angrily. Startled, she looked up, and right into the leathery little face of an angry gnome. Who's stealing my cones, he screeched. And old Althea was frightened, but somewhat indignant, too. Stealing? I'm not stealing, and she told the little man the whole story. <laughs> he started. Be that so? Well, I suppose in that case I can spare a few cones. I'll shake you down some of the biggest ones. And quick as the blink of the eye, he popped back inside the branches, and the tree began to shake as though whipped by a tornado. Old Althea had to look lively to keep from being hit on the head. Finally, the bombardment of cones ceased, and the old gnome stuck his head out just long enough to chuckle and say, There, <laughs> that ought to keep you the winter through. Althea had to admit, there were enough cones there to fill her sack every day for the winter. It was a long way to go for them, but she was grateful. She filled her sack and started home. But even going downhill, her steps dragged. And it seemed to her that with every passing moment, the sack got heavier and heavier. She thought of half emptying it. But they'd need every penny those cones would bring in. So she struggled on. And by the time she reached the cabin door, she was dragging the sack wearily behind her and stumbling every step of the way. Hans was frightened at the sight of her tired gray face. She mustn't let him worry. So she told him about the funny little man and they laughed. See what fine cones he shook down for me? And she opened the sack and out poured pine cones fashioned of solid silver. As the little Norman promised, enough to see the winter through. And then some.
can be sure that no little elf is going to change pine cones into silver for you. But you'll find a silver lining to your gift problem this Yuletide from this friend of ours. found a brooch upon the street one day. It looked to her like jewelry the ten-cent stores display. So she took it home to pin her waist, while out to wash she went. And day by day that trinket gleamed as o'er the tub she bent. But no one stopped to notice it. No mistress at the door would cast a second glance at things the washerwoman wore. It is a pretty brooch, she thought. I'll wear it while I may, then give it to my daughter on her graduation day. It's rather sad to look at now. I've lost a pearl or two, but I can pay a jeweler to make it good as new. So when the happy time arrived, she asked a man the cost of two small pearls which would replace the ones that she had lost. The jeweler the trinket took and gravely looked at Orr. Said he, wait just a moment, please. I fear it'll cost you more. Then you expect these pearls are rare. She trembled at his speech. For gems like this will have to charge $2,000 each. This is a most expensive brooch. Exquisite, charming queen. The washerwoman heard no more. She'd fallen in a faint. To find that brooch, police had searched the city up and down, and all the time it glistened on a woman's gingham gown, and all the time it glistened as she toiled some floor to scrub, or shed its rays of loveliness above the steaming tub. 
But like this washerwoman, countless folks year in, year out, perhaps are blessed with riches they never learned about.